by approaching from the side from right? That's the link between these. So if we start off with an oxidized quinone, this part is exactly the same. We're going to push the electron through. That quinone is going to get reduced. It's going to pick up those two electrons. And it's going to come over here and get reoxidized. So it's going to donate its electrons into this system. Now the important thing is, is that the electrons are donated. In this case, both electrons move to the same place. They were both moved on to oxygen in that example. In this case, what happens is one electron goes through to cytochrome C, then onto the terminal oxidase and down, and eventually it's going to end up on oxygen. Right? But it's only one of the two electrons that originally came from this reduced quinone. The other electron went down and was added onto an alternate oxidized quinone. So it has, you make a semi-quinone. So you picked up one electron and one proton. So the issue is you need another reduced quinone to complete this system. That comes in, again donates one electron through. So you had two times one electron through. That allows the complete reduction of oxygen to water. The other electron comes down and completes the, the um, full reduction of the quinone. <coughs> Follow that. So in this case, you have one, two, three possible coupling sites for moving protons out <coughs> instead of just two over here. So everyone see what the similarity is and what the differences are between a Q loop versus a Q cycle. Questions about that? So, for every two electrons that move through this entire system, you get the possibility of moving more protons out per two electrons compared to this system. Now, whether it only uses one or the other, or only has one or only has the other, all comes down to whether the system that it's using generates the appropriate amount of a strength of a proton motor force for two electrons moving through. This one technically can generate more protons out for every two electrons, and that's probably appropriate for that particular organism or that particular growth condition. Doesn't mean that's what it's going to use, or that's the reason why would they all use this, because it would generate more energy. That's not the issue. The issue is what's the appropriate amount of energy. Everyone understand that. So, <clears throat> I gave you an example of an organism, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It turns out it has the capability of doing a Q loop or a Q cycle. 
So you can have, again, the first part is exactly the same. You have systems that can donate electrons in and generate reduced quinone. Right? So in essence, this part is the same. Right? Regardless of what they're going to use. The difference is, is that this organism can use not only NDH, NADH to donate its electrons, it can also use succinate to donate its electrons. So that's better over here, is that succinate getting oxidized fumarate can generate, can dump electrons into the system. So depending on the appropriate conditions that are um, for this organism, it can use either of these systems. Now, they targeted this for drug development because mycobacterium tuberculosis requires oxygen. It's in strict error. So the other thing you need to do is if you're defining a new drug or developing a new drug, you have to define exactly where it's having its impact. What is the target? So the first set of experiments that they did were here. Keep in mind that quinone, the metaquinone, that's the natural substrate. Right? That's what the quinone is in these systems. TPZ, this molecule, is a synthetic molecule generated by their chemists to structurally mimic that quinone. And what they're trying to do is this molecule does not have the ability to move electrons. So what it's going to do is if it works in this system, it's going to gum up the process. And their belief would be is it would target this aspect. You cannot make reduced quinones. But a drug can have a variety of targets. And you want to make sure that it's targeting exactly what you expect. Right? Because in theory, or at least the hypothesis they were testing, is that if this is a mimic of the quinone, then it can have an impact specifically at that step, or at least in that region of this pathway. Right? <clears throat> now, to figure out the pathway, they added this ascorbate. That artificially adds electrons here. And what it does is you're monitoring the disappearance of oxygen it means that if you add electrons here, and the electrons can push to here, even in the presence of the drug, then the blockage of that pathway cannot be from here to there. Right? So it's not targeting some process after cytochrome C, because they can add electrons to cytochrome C artificially, and they can go perfectly fine to oxygen. Does that make sense? The next experiment they did is they're asking, can the electrons move or can the electrons be detected here, here, or here? And the way they can monitor that is that each of these proteins because they have <coughs> cytochromes in them, cytochromes have a certain absorbance. And their absorbance is different depending on whether it has electrons or does not have electrons. Right? So what you can do is set this up so there's no oxygen present. 
so you cannot jump the electrons to oxygen. So the electrons will accumulate in the system because they're going to push through and get stuck once you've filled up all the possible electrons in the AA3 complex will start to accumulate on cytochrome C. Once you fill your cytochrome C, so it'll accumulate on BC1. Once they accumulate there, etc. Right? So what they're asking, the presence of this drug, if you add in NADH that's oxidized, can the electrons make it to the BC1 complex, C, or A3, or the BD? And they can do that by these various peaks are indicative of electrons being present at one of these systems. And when they add NADH in the presence of the drug, this is the spectrum they get down here. And what that means is no electrons are making it to these complexes. Which means that the block has to be somewhere here. Does everyone understand that? The rest of these are asking a question. Now that we know the block is here, is it NDH2, NDH1, or the succinates might be the reductants? Can they use other molecules? So it's flavone, the known inhibitor of NDH2s. You add that to the reaction, you block NADH oxidation. So that suggests it's probably NDH2. TPC inhibited NADH oxidation activity, which is what you would expect if you're targeting one of these enzymes. Classic inhibitors of NADH1 fail to inhibit NADH, NADH oxidation activity. So if you're targeting this, then if you add a molecule, or you shouldn't be able to push um, electrons through if this is where the electrons are passing through. And what they showed is um, that inhibiting NADH1 had no impact on the ability of the NADH to donate, NADH to donate the electrons. So it's not NADH1. So these are just um, going through and supporting that further. The last one, inhibition of succinate dehydrogenase activity related. So they know that succinate dehydrogenase by adding in TPZ, it has no impact on this reaction. That reaction still happens. So what all of this builds the fact that this group of molecules is inhibiting NDH2. And we follow that logic. Any other questions about that? So you should know the difference between the two, two cycles. It's important, it's also important, and you're trying to make assumptions about other systems we're going to be talking about throughout the semester, because if you see a BC1 complex, it should immediately tell you it's probably going to use a few cycle. Alright. So just went through is the classic respiratory systems and how organisms do aerobic respiration, they also do anaerobic respiration. One of the respiration is one of the dominant ways cells go through and make an electrochemical radiant. I can give you a variety of examples of it. So now we're going to move into phototrophy.
So how cells can capture the energy of light and use that to generate an electrochemical gradient. Now we've already talked about one of these systems, and what was that? Right, we've already talked about one phototropic process. So, now we're going to talk about the classic systems for phototropic mechanisms. Alright, so phototropic, the process where light energy is converted to chemical energy by a biological system. Usually, but not probably coupled to CO2 fixation. If it's coupled to CO2 fixation, then it's photosynthesis. Just use the term phototrophy, you're just talking about <coughs> coupling the capturing of light energy to generating an electrochemical gradient, and that can be used to make energy, but we'll also talk about how it can also be used to make reducing power. There are two types of pro um, prokaryotic phototrophs in the context of this respiratory system. Um, this photosynthetic system. There's oxygenic phototrophs and anoxygenic phototrophs. And all that really means is if you're oxygenic, you're going to generate oxygen. If you're anoxygenic, you're not going to generate oxygen. So the classic system we see in plants, which was derived from cyanobacteria, um, <clears throat> that's going to be oxygenic. There's also anoxygenic, which comes from organisms such as Rhodobacter steroides. Um, the interesting thing, as you'll see, is that the oxygenic system evolved from the anoxygenic. So, when we started talking about respiration, we discussed what things, the molecules that are involved. So you need molecules that can move electrons or protons. Some of those things are conserved in the phototrophic mechanisms, and so we'll go through a little bit about these. <coughs> but also, it's going to be important to understand where they all fit into this process. So to collect light energy, you need pigments, all right? So pigments are going to be required because they're part of the reaction center. That's where the chemistry occurs, where you're going to move and harness that, electric, that light energy. And then you also have antenna pigments. And so they're going to collect more light and extend the wavelength they can use by the organisms. So the mechanism that handle electrons produced by light, that's the electron transport chain, analogous to what we've been talking about in respiration. And then there's this issue of an electron donor and an electron acceptor. If the electron donor is the same as the electron acceptor in this process, it's a cyclic process, and that's the system that generates ATP. If it's a donor and the acceptor are not the same, then it's the non-cyclic process, and the whole point of it is to generate reducing power. So earlier this semester, I was asked about if the bacteriodoxin system um, can generate electrochemical gradient using the light energy, and it's a relatively simple system. One, one protein, one pigment be able to generate, why not why don't all of them use it? And the key part about that is that system generates an electrochemical gradient that's used to generate ATP. It is not coupled to generating reducing power. Right? So this gives what these systems typically have to do for the organism is generate both of those things. Right? So the overview of this system is you have a reduced electron donor, you have light, you're going to get an oxidized electron donor, 
You're going to generate a proton motor force because you're going to have protons. You have electrons, which are going to generate reducing power. When we look at these systems in respiration, metabolic processes generate the reducing um, electrons that then pass through the electron transport chain. You generate a proton motor force that comes in and generates energy. If you look at phototrophs, you're going to use light. You can have a cyclic process, which is going to push protons out of the cell. As they come back in, you're going to um, <coughs> generate ATP. But the reducing power itself is coming from this proton motor force. Right? That's going to drive the ability of the cells to generate reducing power. So the basic components, again, these pigments, and they're going to do different things. There are the chlorophylls and bacteria chlorophylls. The only real difference is if it's the chlorophylls, it's the oxygenic phototrophs. They're called bacteria chlorophylls if they have anoxygenic phototrophs you're using them. They're in the reaction center and also in the antenna. This is showing you structurally the basis of these molecules. These, these tetraparoles, they look a lot like the cytochromes we were talking about. And they're given different um, names and it really deals with the modifications that you see for these R groups. And that's just what's summarized here, is the fact that you know, they all have the same function, but they can be structurally slightly altered. <coughs> but the important thing is, is that they're like the cytochromes, but they don't have iron in the middle. They have magnesium, which means that they're not going to accept electrons out of magnesium. Right? What happens is the electrons, as they're moving them, are absorbed by this conjugated bond system. Right? And that's going to be pretty important when we discuss not only how you move the electrons around, but also when you're talking about these antenna and how you extend the absorbance for phototrophy. Questions about that? Now these are the components that are going to be required, there are some others that we've already familiar with. We're going to talk about fermions, and we're going to talk about iron. So electrons and electrons and protons again. You can also have these other pigments, the carotenoids, they're part of the antenna. They can protect against photooxidation. So light is, um, is great for these organisms, but light can also cause some damage as well. But again, you notice pigment. It's a conjugated bond system. So you have <coughs> double bond to a single bond, double bond, single bond, et cetera. That's what allows them to absorb light. And it's also what allows them to um, protect the cell when they're doing photooxidation and also transfer energy. And so you have a conjugated bond system. And you also have these open chain uh, tetraparoles and cyanobacteria that are structurally here. They also function as antenna. Again, you look through. You have double bond, single bond, double bond, single bond, etc. So you have these conjugated bond systems. Any questions about that? Let's go through the different types of phototrophic prokaryotes. So you have the anoxygenic phototrophs. They're going to use a sulfur or carbon or hydrogen as the electron donor in this system for the phototrophic reduction of NAD or NADP and the generation of a proton motive force.
And they're generally broken into the purples and the greens. <coughs> the purples are generally split between the sulfurs and the non-sulfurs. <coughs> if you're the sulfurs, they use hydrogen sulfide as an electron donor and CO2 as the carbon source, so they're going to do um, photosynthesis. You can also have non-sulfur groups that use hydrogen gas as the electron donor and CO2 as the source. They can also use simple organic acids such as succinate or malate um, as electron donors and also as carbon sources. Right? The distinction between sulfur and non-sulfur hopefully will become clearer as we go through the various mechanisms. Right? Why they're grouped in this. And maybe it's not so surprising, these are the classic definitions for them. Um, as people go through and study a lot of these organisms that are originally grouped as just sulfurs or just non-sulfurs, they're finding they have a little bit um, better metabolic capabilities than we expected. So the ones that are somewhat blurry, but mechanistically it makes sense as we'll go through the details. This is, and you can also have the greens. <coughs> and so the greens also, you can have sulfur versus non-sulfur. And these can use a variety of sulfur-containing compounds, but also they can use hydrogen gas as an electron donor. CO2 is your carbon source, and the non-sulfurs are photoheterotrophic or photoelectrophic. So they can also use some of these can also use hydrogen or hydrogen sulfide electron donors. But again, this is just giving an example that there's some issues with how you discriminate between sulfur and non-sulfur, and hopefully it'll become clearer as we go through this. So there's two groups: purples and greens. And the last one, we'll put heliobacter. Um, strict anaerobe photo, um, heterotrophs. Uh, this is really now it's starting to look. I believe it's more like the greens now. It was originally thought that they'd be separate, but I should update this slide. They're being integrated into the other ones now. So, what we're going to do is go through the mechanism for the purples and the greens, and hopefully, you'll see how they work in a similar manner to what we've already been talking about in standard respiratory. <coughs> So I'm going to show you schematically the overall view of how these systems work. And that this is just showing you once again that if it's a large box like this, that's a protein. <coughs> so the reaction center is actually a dimer. Cytochrome BC1, Q loop, Q cycle. Q cycle, all right. So you know automatically how that's going to work, all right? Electrons are going to move in one at a time and you split. Okay. Cytochrome C, we've already seen that. Now the difference here is cytochrome C previously went to a terminal oxidase. Right? There's no terminal oxidase here. Right? We'll talk about where those electrons are going. Now the key part about this is this reaction center. <coughs> so you have P um, H70, which is referred to as also as the special pair. So <coughs> it's called that because there are two molecules of bacteria chlorophyll that are smacked up right against each other. Right? And we talked about how the environment of certain amino acid residues can influence the pKa of cybers. It's similar in the fact that by having these two molecules of bacteria chlorophyll, right smack up against each other. They can influence the chemistry of each other. Right? So they're very distinct than these bacteria or the bacteria theophytes that are here. The only difference between the bacteria chlorophyll and the bacteria theophytes is that 
Bacteria, these are bacteria chlorophyll that lack that magnesium on it. But they, in essence, work in the same way. So what we've got to do is have electrons move through here, reduce some quinones, get those reoxidized, and move the electrons through the system to generate a proton motor force. Very simple. So to give you the details, they solve the crystal structure of this just to show you where those cofactors are. <clears throat> Here's that special pair. They're just, again, smacked up right against each other. And then you can do the bacteria chlorophyll, the bacteria theophyton, then to quinones, and also an iron molecule. We're going to talk about where the electrons move in just a minute. All right? Interesting thing, it's dimeric, but one side down here uses ubiquinone, um, the other one uses menaquinone. Right? And they're bridged by an iron molecule. All right, so how does this system work? Just go through this stuff like that. Light is going to get hit that special pair. In this case, there's no antenna. All we're saying is light is hitting it. That special pair, and this is a little bit controversial, it's not clear whether the energy absorbed by the special pair um, releases an electron from that special pair. <coughs> Um, or the energy is transferred to the bacteria chlorophyll, and that's releasing the electron. But let's treat it as the special pair releases the electron, just to simplify. So light hits it, releases an electron from that special pair. That electron then gets passed to bacteria chlorophyll, bacteria phytophyton, metaquinone, and then over to the ubiquinone. Right? That iron molecule is not involved at all. It's actually structural. It helps bridge between these two proteins. Also notice, it's only gone down one side. Right? It's not going to go down either of these. It's set up in a way that the electrons can efficiently pass through the L side, but not the M side. So what that's done is release an electron, comes down, and now you have a semiquinone. That quinone has accepted one electron, but it's also picked up a proton as well. Now we'll talk about where that, that what happens next, but let's assume the system reset, you need two electrons to go through, and you have a second electron passed down through the system. So now you have a fully reduced quinone. That quinone, in its reduced form, obviously picks up those protons and can dissociate from this reaction center now you have a population of reduced quinones in the membrane. Those electrons are going to go through the Q cycle. As I told you before, I'm a really poor artist, but this is trying to show you, in essence, it's a Q cycle. You have one electron at a time going onto the cytochrome C, one electron at a time going to a different oxidized quinone in the process of pumping out four protons out of the cell. Now, again, this is the cyclic process we're talking about, meaning that it's going to generate ATP, but in the cyclic process, there's no external electron donor into the system. 
right? The electron is just being just passed around within this complete system. So that cytochrome C2 <coughs> donates the electrons back to the reaction center. Right? So the first hit of this light released a single electron. Right? That system cannot work again unless another single electron came over and went back into the system. Light hits again and the second electron moves through. So what's happening here is the reaction center loses an electron, it passes through this promoted system, goes through the cytochrome BC1, passes through cytochrome C2, and comes back to that reaction center. You have this, in essence, closed loop that's allowing the cell to generate a proton motive force. That proton motive force then is used to generate ATP. Everyone call. Um, I know you said this, but uh, how does the bacteria Same as that NDH1. It's analogous to it. 
that was in respiration. Right? Now, to generate reducing power, this is now going to work in reverse. That's what we've seen previously. We normally saw it take NADH to become oxidized um, to NAD. Now we need it to go the other direction. We need it to take NAD and go to NADH. So for this to work in the non-cyclic way, what happens is those electrons that ended up on quinone now are going to be donated to NADH dehydrogenase, which are going to be the electrons that generates the reduced NADH. So, if we go back to our redox tables. Is NADH a good electron donor to reduce to an oxidized quinone? Thermodynamically, is it favorable? If you think about the respiratory system. Remember we did the thermodynamics and calculated that, right? So we already established that energetically it's favorable for NADH to donate electrons to an oxidized quinone. Here we're asking for it to work in reverse. We're asking to now have the quinone be the electron donor and NADH be the electron acceptor. Is that thermodynamically favorable? Not at all. So how does it work? So if you use something thermodynamically unfavorable, the reaction doesn't work in a way. What's one way to get around that? Coupling. Coupling in what? Um, coupling a process that makes is so thermodynamically um, favorable that it helps the process. Exactly right. So what she's saying is, what you need to do is, in essence, add energy to this process, and add energy that is coupled, as she's saying, it has enough energy that it overcomes that barrier. Right? And that energy is the proton motive force. So what it's done is taking that cyclic process, generated a really strong proton motive force, so strong that now it can be harnessed to generate not just ATP, but now instead it gets used to drive this unfavorable reaction forward. Right? Because it's become energetic. So the way the cell kind of works this out, as you can imagine, if you're doing phototrophy and you're going to do a cyclic process, you're going to generate a proton motor force. As that proton motor force gets stronger and stronger, is that being more challenged by the cell? Is it thermodynamically as energetic as it's going through? Right. So what happens is you start to accumulate a proton motor force, that cyclic process becomes energetically unfavorable because you have such a strong proton motor force. Again, you have this back pressure pushing at that. Now, if you want that system to now be able to work more efficiently, you need to somehow dissipate that proton motor force because you need to get rid of it in some way. And one of the ways you can get rid of it is not only generate ATP, but now also use it to drive the generation of NADH. And now you're dissipating the proton motor force, allowing the cyclic process to generate energy to start up again and work pretty efficiently. 
And so what the cell is doing is balancing those two processes. Generate ATP, strong proton motor force, becomes less favorable, use that proton motor force to generate lots of ATP, lots of reducing power, it gets dissipated, now it becomes favorable to the cell, but crosses again. Right? The cell is just going back and forth. So the problem here is we short-circuited it. Right? If the cyclic process goes through, we can regenerate that reduced special pair. But now we've taken those electrons and go, instead of going through the cyclic process, we've actually shunted them over to NADH. So that's a problem for the cell because now how do you regenerate the reaction center? So this is where those external electron donors come into play. So, <clears throat> if you're going to use hydrogen sulfide in this case, it's a sulfur hydroorganism, it has um, an oxidase that's going to oxidize this. It's also going to take those and it's going to take the electrons out of there and they can be dumped into cytochrome C. Cytochrome C then donates the electrons back to the reaction center. So you've reset the reaction center. Right. So, <clears throat> the non sulfurs then don't use a sulfur-containing compound to be that external electron donor. So you could use hydrogen gas. This is a membrane-bound hydrogenase. It can donate electrons right to cytochrome C. Succinate dehydrogenase can actually be used to push this electron onto fumarate. You go to succinate dehydrogenase, you go to the reduced quinone. That goes through the BC1 complex and can end up on cytochrome C2. So in essence, you're making reduced quinones using succinate now. And now you can go back to the part of that cyclic process. So that's the distinction between the cyclic process and the non-cyclic process for how the cells actually generate their energy and reducing power. Does anybody have any questions about that? All right. I'm going to skip this slide and move on to that was for the purple anoxygenic phototrophs. There are also the green phototrophs as well. Okay, they're evolutionarily distinct. So they also have a reaction center, and they have a cyclic and non-cyclic process. So light hits, that also has a special pair. It goes down through this, goes to a quinone, but now it goes to um, an iron sulfur center. There's actually three of them lined up together. Then it's going to go on to ferrodoxin. Okay, it's not going to go right to a quinone. It's going to go to ferrodoxin. Ferrodoxin is going to donate those electrons in. It's going to pick up protons. You're going to go through a cytochrome BC1 complex. You have the cytochrome C555, just a designation for that protein having a cytochrome with a different absorbance. Electrons come back, ATP synthase. Right? So it's a cyclic process, move the electrons through, and in the process you're pumping protons out of the cell. So very similar to what we saw with the green phototrophs, or excuse me, the purple phototrophs, now the issue is, how do you generate reducing power? <coughs> now we just saw that the way they generate reducing power in the purples 
is that they use the power of the proton motor force to drive an unfavorable reaction. In this system, you pass the electrons to ferredoxin, and ferredoxin then can donate electrons directly to NAD, NADPH. So why do you think it can do that? We haven't, are we using any external energy in this process besides the original light that came in? So why was the, in the purple phototropes, quinones donating electrons to NAD was unfavorable, right? Because of the redox potential differences. You use the power of the proton motor force. So what's that tell you about this system and the ability to donate electrons? It's energetically favorable to do this. Right. So it's being said is it now becomes favorable that these electrons passed to iron can be as energetically favorable to go to the ferredoxin. The ferredoxin is a good enough electron donor that it has a, a redox potential that allows it to efficiently donate electrons to NAD. So you skip around the whole requirement for reversing, in essence, the proton motor force and push that, that's using the energy to push that through to generate reducing power. <clears throat> the greens can skip around that because they use this paradoxin as a bridge. So you get a direct electron transfer process. So <clears throat> that's the non-cyclic process. That means that the cell then need to recharge that special pair. Again, you've got the sulfurs and the non-sulfurs. Depends on what the electron donor is that resets this reaction center. So you can have it go pass through for cytochrome C. <coughs> just a, I'll just give you an article, uh, just a, a general system. Something that has electrons gets oxidized. Those electrons pass through. Go to the cytochrome C 555. Those donate to the reaction center. So this process, again, if you were to look at this and look at redox potentials, it looks very similar. Everything becomes energetically favorable. Special pair becomes a good electron donor. That electron gets passed down things in a favorable way. The important thing is that ferredoxin has a good enough, it is a good enough electron donor that it can donate directly to NAD or NADP. So therefore, you don't need to reverse the proton motor force. Or you don't have to use that energy of the proton motor force to drive generation of ADH. You can then take these electrons, pass through this cyclic process. It's all thermodynamically favorable. Good electron donors, good electron receptors, couple them together to move electrons through. The electrons then move into those electrons to be coupled with generating proton motor force. Also need to generate reducing power, and you can do that in two distinct ways depending on whether you're a purple phototrope or a green phototrope. Right? So you should understand the differences between them, but also their similarities. Does that make sense? 